Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. Today, joining me is Chris Allen. He is one of the co-founders at Osena Spiked Coconut Water. We get into really what it takes to make it in the beverage industry and how scrappy you have to be and how much focus you have to give to the bottom of the funnel. So I really like this. I didn't get level set. A lot of expectations or maybe preconceived notions that people might have about starting a brand. This was a really, really great conversation about what it really looks like to get in there and start your own CPG brand, particularly starting an alcohol brand. And as always, this show is brought to you by Cave. You can check us out at cavesocial.com. We are a social media agency that helps you create content, scale content, and run advertising through social media. So if you need help, you're feeling like your brand needs a little lift on social, head over to cavesocial.com. We will help you out. All right, now let's get into this show. All right, we're back with another episode. Chris, what's going on? Hey, how's it going, Jordan? I'm excited to get into it, man. And we're talking a little bit off air. I want to pop right in and really hear, you know, like who is entrepreneurship for? Who is it not? What has your experience been so far with like you know, working in corporate America and now having your own business. And, you know, we talked a little bit before where you're like, oh, they're very different, but they're for very different people. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on maybe the non-glamorous parts of starting a brand when everybody thinks, oh, hey, I should I should start my own business, right? And we hear that kind of sentiment a lot on places like LinkedIn. So I'd love to hear where you're at and your thoughts on one, what's it really like running a business? Like some maybe entrepreneurship horror stories. Two, Maybe who shouldn't or, you know, being okay with the corporate route. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think first of all, really excited to be here, excited to chat with you. I'm excited to share my story with your listeners. I think I have an interesting story. It's very weird to kind of look at yourself that way from like a third party perspective and say you have an interesting story, but I think I do. So I'll quickly kind of run you through my story and kind of where I'm at today. First of all, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Osena Beverage Company. We are a functional beverage company. Our first product is a spiked coconut water cocktail called Osena, what the company is named after. And we really kind of got started on the belief of better for you alcohol. That is a bit of an extrapolation from what Spike Seltzer and, and High Noons are, were doing a few years ago. So how I got there, really interesting path. I've worked in all sorts of industries. I mean, I was a sports writer in college. I, I guess I'm kind of just still like a bit of a restless soul in terms of finding what I want to do. I was a sports writer in college. I worked for the NFL in England, of all places, growing the game of football in London and teaching that game to Londoners who are used to like rugby and cricket. That was really cool. And then I also was in uh, accounting for a while. And then I spent five years at J&J in their finance leadership development program, which is a rotational program meant to kind of groom you for CFO leadership. And I was doing really well there. First of all, it's a, my hometown company. I was born in the town where J&J is headquartered, New Brunswick, New Jersey. So I drive past their tower my entire life. And it was kind of just a natural fit for me to go to a great company like that and learn the ropes. But while I was there and while I was ascending, I had this nagging itch. It's not a unique itch, right? I mean, everybody, I feel like, or most people feel this itch of there's got to be something a little bit more to this than me just playing within the box of my goals and objectives for the year and getting my hands slapped if I go outside of it. So I'd always been kind of working on entrepreneurial projects on the side, whether that be just doing a business plan and seeing if something is viable. Um, for a while, a friend of mine and I from college worked on a business plan to 
start a sports jersey rental business and ultimately decided that that was not viable and didn't go forward with it. But I had always been kind of like sure that I had some sort of entrepreneurial ish that I just thought that corporate America and especially like extremely large corporate America would ever scratch. And so where that led me was to get my MBA. Like a lot of people in their late 20s, I decided that an MBA would be a good sort of like redirecting waypoint for myself. And I I was lucky enough to get into my dream school, which is Wharton in Philadelphia. I had wanted to go there since I was 15. Didn't get in for undergrad. I was lucky to get into Notre Dame, be able to go to football games. But, you know, Wharton was kind of like a culmination of a 15-year dream for me. And while I was there, uh, I really decided to pour myself into entrepreneurship. So I ended up interning at a company called Faraday really awesome clothing company. I mean, like truly an entrepreneurial success, American dream success story of entrepreneurship. Just two brothers who started the company that now goes toe to toe with J. Crew and Tommy Bahama. Just like amazing company, right? And while I was there, I decided that I was going to do it for myself. And I talked to the owner of Faraday about it. And he's like, yeah, I think you can do it. I was just an idea short, like many people. I was not sure which of my ideas was the best one to go forward with. And I met a co-founder of mine who was a fellow student at Warden. His name is Vicente Sirocco. And he was an intern at Anheuser-Busch and was my roommate that summer in between the years of Warden. And he had an idea about right at the peak of the Spike Seltzer boom. So 2019, he's like, I think they're missing, you know, some, they're missing the idea of of White Claw is really about, I think we can make it better. And the idea of Spike Coconut Water, I have a family background in alcohol. So I decided to just jump in say, okay, this is my idea. I'm going to go for it full bore. And that's when Osena was born. So, you know, it's been a four year journey for me, but I've seen sort of the ups and downs of entrepreneurship through the pandemic, through the downturn, through sort of global instability, inflation. And I definitely see that there are positives and negatives to both paths. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And it's one of those things when you hop into the beverage in particular, it's like learning really quickly, like, okay, the cogs on this cost to ship. You want to get stuff out to the West Coast. Oh, dang. How do we even do this at a profitable clip versus you know, retail or on-premise. So that'd be my next thing would be as you, okay, you have you and your co-founder say, we're going to do this. You go out, was your first move? Like, let's get an MVP. Was it like, we need to, or do we need to go raise some cash? Like mm-hmm. what was the plan? Because I, and I say this to the level set for listeners, because I think a lot of times people think, oh, if I'm starting a company, it's like, I have to be the next Budweiser within the next five years. If I'm raising cash, yeah, I have sure. to be, at this blitz scaling approach. But then there's also people who are able to do like own regions, bubble on those regions, go to next region, bubble on that region and start to kind of build their own distribution within yeah. that, et cetera. So I'm interested like what y'all thought from a game plan side and then what were the first kind of actions to get the beverage up and running? Yeah, so the first piece that I would say about that is really like the way I was taught entrepreneurship in school was about not overcommitting until you're sure that you have a fit, right? And what makes beverage so interesting is that, especially in the period that we were starting it, which was the pandemic, there are really, really high MOQs, like minimum order quantities on pretty much everything that you need to create a business in the beverage space. You can't just go out and buy like three pallets worth of cans. This is not gonna happen. And three pallets is actually a lot of volume to move through for like a new beverage. You think about every single one of those packs is a new person that you make aware of your brand, get them comfortable with your price point and buy it, like find it in the store and buy it. It's a lot. You have to go kind of customer by customer in this business. So in order for us to get 
the materials that we needed to get Osana off the ground, we needed to spend like well into the six figures to get everything. And we weren't going to do that until we were sure that we basically had a business. So we did a lot of consumer testing. We did a lot of pre-selling to like the second tier of distributors and wholesalers to make sure that there was demand there and that the price point worked and that we thought that we could do it like legally. Every, you know, all like um, There's a little bit of legal gray area in terms of like what you can say about electrolytes and functional beverages and things like that. So we wanted to like clear that with the FDA first. All those things, we made sure we like did the pre-selling. We did all of the like product market fit stuff before we went out and we went and bought our first order of cans. So, and then from that point, we did go raise like about a quarter million dollars to get the business off the ground. We did that primarily from like people pretty close to us. We didn't get institutions involved at that point. And to your first point about going big versus going sort of small and local, unless you are very lucky. And like, I could think of a couple examples in our industry where like a celebrity and a lot of money and like a hot product intersected at the right point. Those are very rare. You're not going to blow up nationally, especially in alcohol where you need to find a distributor in every county in the country. And sometimes they only have like four or five counties and then you got to go to somebody else and sell them again. It's just very unlikely you'd be able to get the whole country at once to blow up. So you have to start somewhere. You have to start local and you have to prove it in your local market or the market you choose to launch in before you continue to grow. So for us, I think we kind of see the beverage proposition as being much longer than sort of like the traditional venture capital payback period. It's just not necessarily like something that fits that like tech blow up in a couple of years framework. You got to kind of go like, it seems really elemental to say this, but like store by store and almost customer by customer to grow. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And that's like out of the people we've had on the show, at least that have been able to build the successful businesses that are, they can go and they have a profitable model that then they can take when they go to expand into a new market. They also, you know, you make sure, okay, we're not outsizing our demand with regards to, oh, we're going to go launch in Texas, but nobody's ever heard of us. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. We need to make sure that like, as we go, like you're saying, store by store, also meeting those store managers, getting them trained, getting them putting those personal relationships really mm. into place so that when somebody goes, hey, what do you have? Like, like White Claw or something, they can be like, try this out, you know, yep. go try an Osana. So I'm with you on that. Now, I also think when people hear, oh, I want to start a brand and beverage, they think I'm going to be hands off. I'm going to get a co-packer. I'm just going to handle the marketing, make the Instagram and like, boom, I'm rich. It's not like that. So I want to hear, I know we talked a little bit before I've air, but like you've been in some sketchy spots, yeah, sure. loading cans. What's Walk me through yeah, some of those. For sure. I mean, look, I, you know, if anybody thinks that, I mean, if you are, um, you know, attached to a celebrity or you are a celebrity yourself, perhaps you may be able to get away with that. If not, this is a roll your sleeves up, blood, sweat, grease, oil industry. And especially if you're selling through retail, it's cutthroat. That can lend itself to a number of less than sexy things. And I think for us, like especially when you're launching in New Jersey, 2021, that's the state that I live in. We were in about 600 stores and you get like a report every other day of, okay, um, you know, we put you in like an end cap or we put you uh, eye level in a cooler in this like premium account. One of the rival distributors, they, they might just go in and put something else in front of you, switch the stickers up and put you in the back. And there's like almost no oversight. So especially when you're early and you're kind of bootstrapping this thing, you're not paying for help. I would sometimes buzz by an account myself and ask the store owner if I could reset the shelf for them. And listen, is that very hard to scale that? up to national? Yeah, for sure. But in the beginning, you're fighting for every sale you get. 
So, you know, this is certainly not a passive industry. This is like one of the most get out and fight it out on the front lines of retail type of industries that I've seen. Food is like that too. But even in like a supermarket, you know, you have planograms and things like that, that if they're off, they'll get fixed. In liquor stores, it's not like that. In liquor stores, these are like mom and pop businesses that they're like running around with their hair on fire too. So if you want your business to be like kind of front and center, you you have to find some way to, to keep the standards up. Yeah. And to get cans in hands, right? Which is like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's the only way you're going to make or create the fandom of the brand and get those referrals and hey, mm-hmm. oh, at the barbecue, yo, you got to try this new drink. Oh my God. Like all of that, it comes from that, you know, for lack of a better term, hand-to-hand combat that you have to do in those initial phases, right? But, you know, as you mentioned, it's not, you can't scale that nationwide. Of course, you can get reps and they can do their best job. They're never going to put the same elbow grease that the founders are going to put in. So that leads mm-hmm. me to the next question, which is, all right, y'all are building Northeast. What's the plan, you know, over the next 18 months? Is it to mm-hmm. just really dominate the region? Is it to start to expand? Yeah. Wh- where do you see it going? So we've been very lucky to take on a number of distributors. So I think before I get into that, I would say I back up and say we see a lot more success when our distributors are on board with us, right? So part of the deal, you know, in beer or in seltzer, right, uh, is that we have to go through typically beer distributors to get the product to market. And we pay them 25 to 30% for the privilege of hopefully getting a very engaged sales force that can help us, you know, defray some of that like unscalability of like the personal hands-on nature of the, now it doesn't always, I'll tell you, it doesn't always work out that way, but sometimes you can get lucky, right? So if you got somebody who's really on board with your vision, buys into your product as a source of future growth for them, you can have a lot of success. So we look for wholesalers that are really on board with Spike Coconut Water as a vision, on board with Osena as a brand and see the vision as a source of growth, you know, for them. So we've been very lucky to find a few of those. And the first thing that we're doing is we're expanding into like grocery heavy markets, Midwestern, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and Kentucky. We're working with those distributors to try to find mid-tier grocery stores with like, you know, let's say 10, 15 doors a piece that will help standardize sort of the sell through, help us sort of anchor those markets, find our drinkers, find people buying alcohol in our price point and expand. So again, for us, it's, we've kind of tapped out our home markets, I think for the time being. You know, we'll continue to like steadily grow, but I don't think it's it's not something that requires as much investment anymore. Those new markets are really exciting because, again, I think we think that the account potential is a little better in markets where there's grocery selling alcohol. It's just not the case in the Northeast. And then we've been really lucky to sell into special channels in the Caribbean, which has been a home run for us. And we have a few more of those deals to be announced very soon, hopefully. But we've been stocking up at luxury resorts. My next question was going to be looking at the channel split when we look at retail leading and then where DTC, but also more so, which I think is often overlooked is the on-premise side of things. So that, yeah, this has very resort feel to it, the brand. So that's cool to hear that. And piggybacking off of that, I guess, how does seasonality affect it? It does. I mean, there's just, I mean, there's really no way to get around it. We've tried to find ways to counteract seasonality or blunt its effect, but all canned beverages see, especially in places that have weather fluctuate. I know you 
you're lucky, you know, in California, you guys don't get it as bad as we do up here in Jersey, but it's just sort of natural that people switch over to, to darker spirits, wine in the winter. We are going to see some downfall in the, the off months. I mean, our distributors are prepared for that. Luckily, some of our warmer markets have allowed us to sort of have like an anti-seasonality effect and, and kind of like help us get more on like a cyclical cash flow, which is really nice. But um, one thing that we've been able to do, which I, I think kind of ties to your prior point on on-premise is, you know, when we went into on-premise, a lot of canned products, and this is kind of like a long-standing belief in like clear RTDs, you know, like your vodka-based RTDs. I think it probably would be the case in tequilas now, seltzers, is that those places were reticent to sell those products because they wanted to just sell you a handmade RTD. They wanted to hand- sell you a handmade vodka soda. They've got much higher margin on it. But eventually the brand preference just became too great and they had to start selling it. Selling a can over the bar for us is one thing, but we think that that kind of caps the potential of a product like ours. What we think is perhaps more interesting is using coconut water as a base in a cocktail program. So we've designed a cocktail Mm. program with a mixologist that we use to sell into restaurant groups. And what you can do is you can kind of think about this as like your favorite cocktails, you know, that you're used to buying at the bar but using coconut water as sort of our coconut water, which is very neutral, as a base rather than soda water. And that gives you the sort of hydrating properties of coconut water. Also doesn't dilute down the drink, so the bars are able to charge more for it, and they actually make a ridiculous margin on those cocktails because they're mixing alcohol with alcohol and it doesn't dilute down. So we've seen really early positive effects of that. We're hoping that those are sort of like all-season cocktails and will help us a little bit see on premise is a bigger chunk of our of our pie once we get into like October, November. Yeah, if you're able to become a staple on some of those menus and like you're saying, be part of those that, that the early returns mix. are good. Yeah. I like that. I also like marketing initiatives like that, like going and finding a mixologist. We had someone on the show who like made a cookbook that was more just about raising the cat. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. And it's a great way to kind of get down and dirty with regards to entrepreneurship, marketing, really getting like tactical with it. Because on the flip side, there's so many people who want to just like put a beautiful product photography image on their Instagram and be like marketing Mm -hmm. where it's not going to really move the needle. Right. So when you look at that and you're evaluating how you market the business, particularly for, you know, the different phases of where you're at and maybe each market, where are you and your co-founder splitting tasks for marketing, splitting tasks for like ops accounting is it just hey we have a pile of stuff to do you know we're doing this we're doing that how do you all kind of tackle each thing yeah for sure so i mean i think that the elemental split that we have is vicente is a very seasoned operations executive in the space i mean he he really got a great training in that during his time at ab comes from that background so he does you know operations accounting finance for us fundraising takes the lead on all those. I would say the one thing that I'm primarily leading in is sales and just wholesale relations, which is, you know, we have close to 20 distributors now in three or four countries. So I have my hands full with that. With marketing, we definitely both kind of share the lead. What I think is really interesting is that we both do have kind of like a similar marketing mindset in that neither of us are marketers by trade. I was a marketing MBA, but neither of us have done it professionally until until this. Our belief in alcohol is in bottom of funnel tactics, right? That's like our belief is we want to find consumers when they're already in the bottom of the funnel, like at a consumption event or a buying you know, opportunity, not big believers in just throwing a bunch of money in the top of the funnel for brand awareness. It's just not, 
really hard to attribute, like really hard to see without like necessary scale what the ROI is on those sorts of tactics. So I think we'd probably be like one of the last brands that you'd see blowing you up on Instagram and Facebook. Where we do really excel is price promotion, in-store events, festivals, on-premise, menus, like coasters. Those are the things that we do well. So, and we're kind of of the belief that like when somebody sits down at, you know, Bahama Breeze, they're closer to buying a drink than they are when they're just scrolling their Facebook at work. Yeah, it's meeting people where the demand is, right? Which is, I think, is so pivotal when you're starting a company and trying to get it running. Like you're saying, okay, if we're able to demo at the liquor store, that person's coming in with the intent to purchase a smoke call, right? Or go to the events or be at the festivals, et cetera, versus, yeah, stumbling upon something and then trying to attribute it back. Or even, I mean, alcohol has a little bit more rules when it comes to uh, advertising, but let's say, it's like the cost to get a true fan of the brand is can be just so, so high when you go top of funnel brand route versus like what you're saying and in, in doing that. I also think that a lot of times, and this is just my, my belief, like you got to have good liquid. It, it, there's just too much out there right now that if your liquid is even like average, you probably are not going to be successful. And I think that when a lot of people do like their CAC to LTV calculations on those sorts of things, they're assuming a very, very high retention rate for the customer lifetime value. And you're probably overestimating that. I think there's a lot out there and customers in this area are very promiscuous, very brand promiscuous. So it's, it's, they're switching around all the time. You know, even in my own anecdotal experience, I'll do the same thing. I go in and if I have, I'm going to go, Oh, I got to get whatever seltzers or beer or whatever. And I'll look, and maybe I have an inclination towards a certain brand, but say it's not shelved correctly, it's not faced, whatever. I might be like, oh, it's not there. Okay, I'll grab the next one, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very elastic category for me. So to yep. your point, it's something that you just continuing to kind of pound pavement, get in those backyard barbecues, get into the coolers, right? How do you get into the coolers at those family events or friend events? And totally. I love it. Yep. Cool. Well, Chris, before we wrap it up, I want to let you take the floor, let people know one where they can pick up some of uh, Osena and where they can find you online. Yep, sure. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure and, and thanks to everybody for, for listening and hearing me out on my uh, my takes on the beverage space, the crazy space. But um, we are uh, at Drink Osena, that's O-S-E-N-A on all socials. So Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, TikTok, threads, you name it, <laughs> you name it, right? In terms of picking the product up, you can pick us up at retail. If you're in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Illinois. If you happen to be vacationing on Aruba, you can pick us up there. If you're outside those states, don't worry. You can still find us. The best way to get us is drinkosenda.com, shop tab. We partner with a company called Taproom, and you should be able to get the product delivered to you in most states in the country within a couple of weeks. And we'd love you to give us a shot then. If you like us, let us reach out and we'll try as best we can to get the product on shelf in your area. Beautiful. Thanks again for coming on, Chris. My pleasure. This is awesome. Cool. Cheers. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. As always, hit all those little buttons at the bottom of your podcast app, like, share, subscribe, and I will catch you next time.